0: Our, our Lord uh, Jesus Christ asks an incredible question in um, Matthew. Uh, sorry, Mark chapter 8. He says, what will you give in exchange for your life? And that is a profound question. Uh, in that passage, he speaks about giving or losing your life for his sake. Uh, and he says, if you gain the whole world, but then you lost your life, meaning you really didn't live it, then... You know, what, what would you give? What is the value of a human life? Uh, most people, when they hear that, they think of physical life, and they think of physical death, and, you know, and, and that's what's in view. I guess some might think of that old uh, Faustian, or Faustian, I think it's pronounced, uh, the character who uh, sells his soul to the devil to gain things. Uh, and, and and that may be in view. But the view there is actually the experience of God's life in yours. So he's not really speaking of physical life there at all. He's speaking about the life that he gave and that God desires for every single human being. And uh, he asks us point blank, what is that worth to you? Uh, in, it's very soon after Israel were, left Egypt... God said to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes and live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God. In this statement, God bookends, I am the Lord your God. At the end, I am the Lord your God. Don't do what they, they do in Egypt, don't do what they do in Canaan, do what I do. And that's the life. Again, what would you give in exchange for that? And a lot of people are sellouts, and that's kind of what we're getting at today in terms of our passage. So we're going to be in Matthew 3 again, in Matthew 3, 7. So let's open up in prayer and give to God our gratitude and uh, our respect as we learn his word and, uh, and to uh, give over to him all of our, um, our, our desire to learn. And so with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the grace that you provide for us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you for all things. We know, Father, that you and you alone are our source of life. Our source of wisdom, our source of knowledge. And that being that source of life, Father, we long to live the life that you've given us and not be deceived by the very things, very many things that are all around us. We know, Father, that the world does not know you, but yet we know you. And then we still can be deceived by the things in the world. So we ask, Father, for your clarity so that each of us would have the courage to live the spiritual life that you have blessed us with. We ask, Father, that through your Spirit, your Word would come alive to us and reveal to us the life that you have given us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So the uh, this is now turned to... Uh, we looked at the fruit of the Pharisees yesterday... And we're going to continue to look at fruit as it's depicted in the Gospel of Matthew, which is in several places. Um, And in chapter 3 here is the first place that it's mentioned by John, uh, John the Baptist. Uh, We find out through this Gospel, and of course in agreement with the rest of the New Testament and Old, uh, that the only fruit worthwhile in a life is the kind that God grows. And God uses this uh, agricultural fruit analogy. Uh, sometimes this this very word, this Greek word, is karpos, and, and it can be translated grain. Uh, that's a that's a common way of God depicting the fruit that we produce. Uh, if you remember, in uh, Israel has a uh, a festival called the Feast of First Fruits. It comes after Passover. And on the Feast of First Fruits, the Israelites were to bring the first of their produce, which would have been the barley harvest, and they would have brought that in and they wave it before God as a means of saying, All that we have comes from you. And same is true for us. We, and so the Bible is very clear on this, it makes it super simple for us that we can either produce good fruit or bad fruit. And, and therefore, everyone's a tree. And as Jesus is going to tell us that you can either be a good tree or a bad tree. The bad tree produces bad fruit. The good tree produces good fruit. And as believers in Jesus Christ, what we'll get into on Sunday through the baptism of the Spirit, this amazing thing that God has brought to the human race, (coughs) uh, something incredibly astounding and surprising, which is the baptism of the Spirit. God has made every believer a good tree, and so we are designed to produce good fruit. It is the whole purpose of why we're here, and in so doing, we reveal God to the world around us. Uh, So it's a great calling upon everybody's life, and it demands an enormous amount of faith. Uh, Faith is a very simple thing, but it's not so simple to have all the time. Uh, in our passage, the Pharisees and Sadducees are singled out by John as needing to produce the fruit of repentance, as he says. Therefore, it can't just be in word only. Just, yeah, sure, I repent, or, uh, you know, as we're just going to say things but not actually do them. Uh, so, <clears throat> if they do not repent and the people don't repent, then God, uh, sorry, John says that the trees are going to be cut down. Uh, the trees here are going to refer to either the individual people, whether they're Israelites or Gentiles, believer and unbeliever, uh, or, <coughs> excuse me, they're nations, either Israel as a nation or the Gentile nations. Uh, the Gentile nations are, are depicted in this exact same way, that they are cut down uh, if they uh, don't produce the fruit of it. So uh, coming up very soon in 70 A.D., uh, Jerusalem will be sacked by the Romans, and this is going to be the direct result of their rejection of their Messiah. In 70 A.D., where, where John is now, we're about 25, 26 A.D., and <coughs> excuse me, and Jesus is just going to start his ministry. And uh, about, oh, say a little less than 50 years after this, the whole city's going to burn and the temple's going to be destroyed. Uh, and that's a direct result. So, John's saying that the axe is already at the root of the tree, meaning that the tree's going to be cut down. Uh, the fulfillment of that is going to come in about 50 years because they're going to actually not repent and reject the Lord. Uh, the time for the king is now. And this is an important aspect of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Matthew's again, he's writing to Jewish unbelievers uh, in in somewhere around 60 AD, 60 50, but it's before the destruction of the temple. And he is, uh, you know, revealing to them that the time to repent is now. It wasn't ten years before Christ came on the scene. It wasn't even a year before he came on the scene. But right at that time, now comes your king. Your king is here, and you've got to decide. You you can't wait to the next generation. You can't wait another 50 years. You've got to decide now. And I, I, I admire that principle because for each of us, as Paul writes, today is the day of salvation, right? If There are days that are going to come in our lives. They're important days. And there could be days in which, you know, God is not doing a whole lot in your life. And then, bam, he does something. You know, when God acts upon your life, there's a day that's coming. That day you need to be prepared for. Whether it's a promotion or a great change or whatever God is going to do. We've likely had a few of them. They don't happen every day. They're rare, but when they happen, they're, they're monumental. The day of your death is going to be one of those days. Now, are you prepared for it? When that day comes, there's no way you're going to change it. But your preparation for that day is now. So as John is saying to them, prepare for the coming of the Lord, the application to us is the same. You and I have to prepare because there's going to come a day for you and me where we're going to face the Lord and all of us are going to be judged and you won't be able to have it there's no excuses you can't say well it was this guy it was that guy it was their fault it was their fault it's nobody's fault you stand before the lord on your own and give an account so again second corinthians chapter 10 chapter 5 second corinthians chapter 5 so our preparation either it's for death or the judgment seat of christ or those important days in our lives we have to repent of all things that need to be repented of. Uh, As we uh, see in the passages that reveal the Pharisees, the Pharisees thought, as John says here, um, that because they were born Jews, that they're okay and they're good with God. I mean, we're, we're okay. And what happens in America is that Christians think that because they're like the world and things are okay in their lives, that they're not facing a whole lot of, uh, well, grave discipline, we would say, or trouble or tribulation. They think everything's fine, when in fact it might not be. But that's, of course, you and I have to evaluate that. The problem is when we don't, as we go through decades of time and don't ever stop to think, you know, what's my spiritual life like? What areas in my life do I need to repent of that I probably should have repented of years ago? You know, you can waste years in being immature. I mean, we all start off immature. All of us are going to be immature. But uh, to mature takes the word of God and an application of the word of God. To ask yourself, you know, where do we do that? Ask ourselves, ask God in prayer, show me the areas in my life in which I have to. Change my heart. God, God warn, warns us. I didn't say the word warn. God warns us all and gives us time to repent until He doesn't. <clears throat> Excuse me. There comes a day where the, the the jig is up. Whether it's physical death, whether it's a situation where God has given you time to learn and to grow. These these things should be. Yeah, I, I would say scary to us in a in a means in a good way. In other words, to put a fire under us to say, well, you know, I'm not going to have eternity here to change my heart. And it, it needs to happen now. Um <clears throat> what we do in this life is rewarded or rewards are withheld. Jesus doesn't go into the detail of what those rewards are, but he speaks of it quite a bit. And for you and me, rewards in this world and the world to come. It's not a selfish thing. It's just a matter of, you know, um, you know that, that I either, you know, I, I'm just, I'm rewarded for what I do if I produce fruit. And I'm designed for it. So uh, look at Matthew 3, 7. <clears throat> but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers. It's not really a brood. Brood is okay, but it's a generation. That is the word. You generation of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Again, tongue-in-cheek there because they all know the prophets and those are the ones who warned. uh, But they had not seen themselves in the prophets. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping uh, or worthy of repentance, And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so if we're wondering, what are trees here? It's a reference to individuals, as we see in other passages we'll look at here in a few minutes. And it's also a reference, they can be used in reference to Israel itself. The fig tree that Jesus sees that doesn't bear fruit, it's in Matthew 21, uh, he withers it. He curses the tree and it withers. That tree represents the nation of Israel. So the trees can represent an individual. A tree can represent you as a believer. It can represent the unbeliever. And therefore, all individuals. Or it can represent a Gentile nation, which multiple times in the Old Testament, uh, Gentile nations of Babylon, Assyria, and Egypt are all chopped down by God, and and to Israel, of course. And so, the, of course, what we're more interested in is is us. Uh, but in as w- when we look at all that God reveals to us in His Word, we learn what God wants for us. We you know, and so. If God is going to speak about Israel, we need to learn it. Even if we think, well, you know, I'm not of Israel in the first century. What has it got to do with me? If God puts it in his word, there's a reason. And that reason has application to you and me in this day. Because the word of God is eternal. So our theme here, same theme as yesterday because it's the same passage, is that John is warning the Pharisees and Sadducees that they must bear the good fruit worthy of repentance, or that generation will be removed. Uh, Removed or destroyed is a a good translation for that word, without experiencing the kingdom of heaven. And we know that this didn't happen. Uh, So they didn't. They didn't repent. Uh, And so they rejected their Messiah. A lot in Israel accepted him, but not enough. The Pharisees and Sadducees, we see them all through. Uh, The other two groups that we see are... um, uh, the chief priests and the scribes and those could be in I was going to go into who the Pharisees and Sadducees were today but there's not enough time. they they're more like political groups that became more and more religious once the Romans took over. It's hard to be a political group when the Romans are in charge you know so but they they opposed each other uh, but yet, And it was generally the Pharisees. The Pharisees had a lot more, the most, uh, there were like somewhere the estimate is like there's 6,000 Pharisees at the time of Christ. They're more numerous than the Sadducees. And the Pharisees were very popular with the common people. We find that out too. Um, And the, the ones that Jesus speaks of the most in being trouble for him are the Pharisees. And those, that's how we looked at them yesterday. Uh, the times of the Gentiles will then come in uh, after Jerusalem is destroyed. That's when, and Jesus speaks of this, the time of the Gentiles come. We're still in the time of the Gentiles, which we will be until the Lord returns. And, and all of that's kind of filler there. But we're going to look at fruit. So every person will bear fruit. So in the next paragraph, and just really one sentence is the next section here in Luke, uh, sorry, in Matthew 3, is that Jesus is going to either baptize with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, or with fire. And there's no other options. And this baptism is amazing. This baptism. But you're either going to be baptized by the Spirit or baptized with fire. And the fire there represents judgment. And so every person's a tree, and the trees created by God are to produce good fruit or bad fruit. but it depends on what kind of tree you are. So look at Matthew 7:15, a couple of passages to dig up here. Matthew 7:15. And we should all rejoice that we're good trees. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a good tree. Do you know what that means? It means that the bad trees, <laughs> if your parents were bad trees and you inherited their badness or they imposed on you their badness when you grew up in their home, you're not that tree anymore. That was of the flesh. You're now born of the Spirit. though everything in the past, even this flesh that doesn't want, I have power over it. Through Christ our Lord. The, pro- the reason why Christians don't have power over their flesh is that they don't tap into the power of God. They're confused and they're, they don't know. And passages like this, and many other kinds of passages, God uses multiple ways to reveal to us how he's given us a new life and a power. It's unfortunate that Christians are not in awe of just being saved. I say just. But we've kind of lost that, I think. The fact that I'm baptized by the Spirit and that I'm in union with Christ and that I have eternal life, that every day should make you full of joy. But a lot of Christians have lost that because they've gotten so familiar with it. I mean, in a way, the fact that we can so freely speak of it is a good thing. But it's also a bad thing. That it doesn't cost us anything to hear it or to speak of it, and therefore, some, to many of us, it loses its value. Look at Matthew seven fifteen. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So Jesus proves his point, which everybody here knows, even everybody in all ages knows that no, you don't get grapes from thorn bushes. So every good tree bears good fruit, but bad trees bear bad fruit. The good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can the bad tree produce good fruit. Now in there, he doesn't mean at all that you're going to do everything good, but that you were designed for it. It's, it's an image, it's an analogy that you know good trees make good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, same language as John, and thrown into the fire. Then you will know so then you will know them by their fruits. So clearly here, you can't produce good fruit. When getting back to John, you know, we don't want our lives to be cut down. How does how does the cut down tree apply to the believer? We can't lose his salvation, but what the believer can lose is the experience of eternal life in this age, in, in your life now. We can totally lose it. We can totally give it away as we get ourselves involved in whatever, the world, us, what we want, our things, materialism, uh, social life, addictions, whatever. Pour our minds and our energy and our time into things that are not God. And we miss it. And this is what Jesus says. He says it so beautifully, so simply. If you lose your life, you'll find it. You lose your life for my sake. The word he uses there, apolumi, this Greek word, it means to throw it off. You lose it for my sake and you will find it. Meaning you'll find what life really is. But you know, and how do we lose it? It's by faith, and we're tempted to fear that loss. Could you lose it? You know what you're going to lose here by giving your life to Christ is nothing valuable. So Christ, what Paul wrote in Philippians three, I think we referenced it last night. That you know, he had he had it all going for him as a Pharisee of Pharisees, and he said it was all rubbish. So the change in us must be complete. Bad trees don't produce good fruit. So you have to be completely changed. And that is the next part of Matthew. The baptism of the Holy Spirit completely changes people. It's a new birth. The context points to the bad fruit of the prophets. But the fruit is not what they say, correct? Because they're saying if they're false prophets, they're trying to trick people. So they're deceptive. So it's not, their fruit is not what they say, but the manifestation of the content of their hearts. And as we know, by the way, in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, especially in chapter 23, where it's in chapter 23 where Jesus keeps saying, woe to you Pharisees, woe to you Pharisees and scribes. Um, He equates Pharisee with the word hypocrite. Hypocrite. Now what is a hypocrite? A hypocrite is one who puts burdens on others but doesn't lift the burdens themselves. They say they're going to do, they tell others to do, but they don't do it themselves. They're hypocrites. There's a lot of them. And Jesus equates the Pharisee with the hypocrite. And that's what's here. The false prophet is a hypocrite. He says things, but the fruit of his life shows differently. And this shows us that what we say and what we do can only be a manifestation of a good heart. So, for instance, if you find that you're a type of person who keeps, you know, sticking their foot in their mouth. like You don't say the right thing or in the right way. God says, don't change how you talk. Change your heart. And then it will come naturally. And then you're actually not even scared to say things the wrong way. Right? Because if people misunderstand, they misunderstand. All of us have you know, We say things in the wrong way, even though if we have good intentions. But what God is saying here is that if your character in your heart is good like his, then it will manifest itself. And so we can all, with great confidence, say, I can change my heart. We're, I can allow, I should put this better, I can allow God to change my heart. And when God changes my heart, everything's going to just work out wonderfully. Things work together for good to those who love God. So good fruit turns out to be speaking the truth from a regenerated and transformed heart. All right? So regenerated is uh, the term for being born again, your new birth. And uh, being this regeneration is the baptism of the Holy Spirit uh, in a transformed heart. That's the exact opposite of a hypocrite. You know, I'm true because my heart is true. And how do we develop such a heart? Faith in His Word. It's the Word and the Spirit that gives this to you. In Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt. Seasoned with salt means it's palatable to others, as Paul would write in Ephesians, 5, uh, Ephesians 4. Uh, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. It's seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Notice, it's everybody. How do I respond to my enemy? How do I respond to my lover? How do I respond to my, my best friend? To a stranger, to an unbeliever, to a believer, to someone who just hurt me, to someone I'm doing business with, to someone who just stole from me, whatever, that I know what to say. And the reason why, look, there's no manual in the Bible that says, well, if someone just stole from you, turn to page 1057 and read, right? We don't have that kind of manual here. God gives us his truth, and then he tells us to figure out how to apply it. You know, one of the things that pastors really struggle with is taking the things that are in here and making them applicable to modern times. And It's not so much of a struggle, but it's just that the people who are listening to you are all going through different things. So if I had to take the principles of truth that were in here and apply them in a hundred different situations, well, that would be the end of class right there. And I might not even hit your situation. And so what God wants me to do is teach the Scripture. And then from the Scripture, you take that and figure out your application. Because the pastor can't get to it all and so we take responsibility for our own spiritual lives we take responsibility for our own trees and know that we have to produce fruit we don't wait upon the pastor to tell us how we take it we take what the pastor teaches us from the scripture and learn the scripture ourselves all right Matthew 12:30 Now Matthew 12:30 this is just after they accuse Jesus of doing his miracles by the power of the devil. Matthew 12:30 He who is not with me is against me and he who does not gather with me scatters. Right? It's very similar language. It's either or. Right? No middle ground. Either you're a good tree or a bad tree, either you gather or you scatter. Therefore I say to you, any sin in blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. And that lack of forgiveness is going to show up in 70 A.D. with the Romans. Really, 66 is when they, 66 A.D. when they show up. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. And here is a reference to the fact that they accuse Jesus of doing his miracles by the power of Satan. It doesn't mean that they can't be delivered or forgiven of their sin and not go to heaven. Uh, The reference here, in my opinion, would be that it is a reference to the fact that the uh, offer of the kingdom of heaven right here is taken off the table. And that they will not receive that and their nation will be destroyed. And many of them will die a very miserable death. So he says in verse 33, Either make the tree good or its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. Same exact phrasing as John. You brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, The evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an account for it in the day of judgment. You take that to heart. Isn't that the most amazing thing? That's probably not like our favorite memory verse. But it is true, is it not? Every careless word that people speak, they shall give an account in the day of judgment. And you know we can theologize that and say, "Well, that's for the unbeliever or that's for Israel at this time, and maybe that's true, but um, you know if we if we impart that kind of theology here, we're adding to the Word of God because he doesn't say that. He says every careless word that people speak, and so you know, it makes me think, well, you know, regardless. Isn't it important what I say? Isn't it important how I? We just said it, saw it in the last passage. How you will speak to every person you will know out of the good that is in your heart. So it's not for me to say, well, I better, you know, um, I better be uh, thinking about every single word that comes out of my, ha- of my mouth, but rather that I need to transform my heart. By God's word, God's grace, God's love, God's Spirit—that the truth of the matter in every situation—and as he will, as we'll see—and it says it in these passages, uh, one coming up—that the least of you, the servant of you, is the greatest. And you see, one of the miracles that God performs here, in which He is making you into a good tree that produces good fruit, is He removes your pride. And that is an absolute miracle that you truly learn to give all things over to him and to be his servant in all things to all people in all situations. So again, in verse 36, I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Amazing how important our words are. The good tree, as he says of them, you can't speak that which is good because you're evil. So the good tree, you have to be a good tree. And lo and behold, by the gift of Christ to us and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you and I are made good trees. We are all set. Now, if we say, well, you know, it doesn't matter how we speak. I don't care about that. And you miss out on the experience of eternal life and time. And you miss out on rewards for eternity. So the emphasis on this passage and what you say. God will change how you speak. God will change how you interact with people. And, and, and by the way, we're always growing. And so if our interaction with people has not changed over you know, the way we interact with people, if it hasn't changed at all in decades, then we have to ask ourselves, am I growing, am I, am I changing as I should? So that's repentance. Repentance means change. You know, the, the word has been used in negative context so much that it, it's, uh, I think it, it has gotten a bad rap. Um, it's just a word that means to turn around. To take a part of your heart that you have not turned to God and turn it to Him. Submit it to Him. Are you scared to do it? I am. I'm as scared as anybody. You know, Just when, just when you think you've submitted enough to God, God reveals to you that there's something else that you need to submit to Him. And uh, oh God, when are you going to quit? He's never going to quit. <laughs> he loves you too much. He wants you to enjoy Him. And so repentance changes the ideas in the heart that produce new words, and words that have meaning, right? The hypocrite is the one who has the, you know, the real good way to talk, but in his heart, he doesn't mean it. That is the Pharisee. All right, 1318. This is a big one. So we ask, you know, what? why is this important? Obviously, as Jesus has pointed out here, if we're going to be judged on every careless word, then, um, you know, how we understand that doesn't matter, I don't think. I mean, I think people get all caught up in the particulars of that. He doesn't go into particular here. I mean, there is a judgment seat of Christ for the believer. There is a great white throne judgment for the unbeliever in Revelation 20. Uh, our, our judgment is depicted in several places in the New Testament, particularly 2 Corinthians 5. And, you know, it's, if, say, you know I think about one of the things that crossed my mind is that if every careless word is going to be judged, like, isn't that going to, like, take a lot of time? Like, I'm not going to just be there forever, hardly. It would seem like forever where I'm standing before the Lord as he looks into every good and every bad and every word. And, you know, when you get to heaven, where we presume this happens, time doesn't matter anymore. I mean, I don't know how it's going to feel or to look, because God doesn't tell us. But it makes a great difference, therefore. You, know, you can be a rare source of truth to the people around you, or you could be just like a worldling. You know, and that's for us to decide, for us to grab hold of, the fact to know by faith that yes, I am a good tree. I've been made a good tree by the Lord Jesus Christ and His incredible sacrifice in my behalf. All right, Matthew thirteen eighteen. Uh, this the the description. We'll go straight to the description of the parable of the sower, and uh, it, this one I think we'll just do one more after this. And you could teach multiple classes on the parable of the sower. That um, this is the chief of the parables, as the Lord said, it is the one that is uh, the foundation of all of them. And uh, every one of Jesus's parables, there's generally, I would say, always. I say generally because I want to cover my myself. <laughs> but uh, the one main point, uh, don't get all caught up in the details because the details are images generally and they're analogies and we get lost uh, in, in the weeds. Uh, so you're looking for one main point generally and, and then just take it simply because that's what it is. But in, in the parables always have something in them that are incre- that is incredibly surprising. And that's what we're looking for. So, here, then the parable of the sower, he says in verse 18. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom the seed was sown in the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word of God immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, it is only temporary, and when affliction and persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. So those first three are the ones in which nothing happens, right? There's no fruit. But the fruit then comes from what? And it's a good soil. So the good soil would be akin here to the good tree. The one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. And the numbers there are variously interpreted that some of us will produce more fruit than others. It could mean that. Again, he doesn't go into detail about it. But what matters is, because we won't be able to compare this at all, not in this life, how much fruit you have, I mean, compared to me or anybody else. But what is important here is that you're good soil. And the good soil hears the word, that's first, but, you know, so did the others. The others heard the word too. But this one, the good soil understands it. And to understand the Word of God, you've got to have faith in it. To understand the Word of God, you've got to apply it to your life. And you've got to live it. No one understands the Word without living it. So, for instance, you know, there's much to apply. I understand that. I say it all the time. And um, to apply particularly that my life right now has to produce fruit. And what is that fruit? It's God's fruit that is produced in me because he made me a good tree. I'm, the, I'm a branch that is grafted to the vine. And through that vine, if I abide in the Lord, I will bear much fruit. And Jesus particularly said there, that's in John 15, that it's our obedience to him and our love of him. And I should reverse that because he said, he who loves me will keep my commands. So it's our love of him. But where are you going to get love of Him if you don't actually pursue Him and get to know Him? The only way you're going to get to know Him is to live like Him. There's plenty of people who have a lot of academia in their minds, but they don't have application. And therefore, they don't really know the Lord. They know of Him. They don't know Him. It is incredibly important that you know Him as a person. So, the first three... Our life without fruit. And so what happens to the first one is that he didn't understand, and so he let it go. I'm very much summarizing here or paraphrasing, but he didn't really understand it. Like, all right, uh, yeah, that sounds pretty good, I guess. I heard about Jesus being the Savior of the world, dying for the sins of the world. didn't really make a lot of sense to me. You know, I love Jesus' golden rule do unto others, you have them do unto you. You know, yeah, sure, that's great. He's a good moral teacher, but, you know, uh, I'm not really dying for the sins of the world. By the way, I'm not really much of a sinner anyway. And this kind of thinking amongst people, they hear Jesus, the the gospel's everywhere in the world. They're like, yeah. And they, it's to me, it's not even really Satan snatching it away as much as they're giving it away. It's Satan comes, can, almost like, you know, they give him permission. Here, take it. We wonder about, and I have wondered about this, can Satan just go into the heart of a person and snatch away the gospel? Uh, no. Where is that? In this? It's not. That's not anywhere in the scripture. He doesn't have that kind of power. People give him the gospel. They hear of it, and then they go, eh doesn't apply to me. The next one is no firm root. And that is persecution, right? Persecution is enough for them to give it away. So he says they have no firm root. It's a shallow, shallow soil. and Not good soil. And so they hear the word. But then they think, oh, man, I don't you know, want to get into it too much. People will think I'm a Bible nerd. What about my family doesn't believe? My coworkers and friends make fun of me. I can't keep going to church. The world over says that it's all untrue. And when I do go, I get persecuted and made fun. See, the persecution like here in America is that you get made fun of, or you get like canceled on social media. Like it's it's when you think about it, compared to like someone who has to be a professing Christian in like China, it, it, there's really not much persecution here. Even I don't know if we would even call it that. But yet, it's enough for people to say, you know what? I don't want it. I couldn't possibly speak the Bible in public or at work or at school. People look at me weird, and it's enough to, for me to shut my mouth. So persecution comes, they give it away. Then the third one is the worry of the world. Worry and lust. That Jesus here mentions the lust of riches, of wealth. That is truly what the Pharisees were after and what many people in the world are after. But I, I don't think we would be out of line in applying this to any lust that anyone would have. And you know, if you're going to mature in the word, that stuff's got to go. You know me, I'm not ever going to ever say that it's sinlessness. But to mature in the world, you can't live a double life. Mature in, in the scripture, I mean. Mature spiritually. See, a person who's worried cannot apply truth to, say, being gracious. You know, when we're talking all the time about the fact that you're not going to learn the Lord unless you apply. If I'm worried, how am I going to be gracious? If I'm worried and, and lusting for money, how could I be gracious to the people around me that I need to be gracious to? That the Lord has put in my life to exercise so that I can exercise my graciousness. I'm too, no, I need to have money in the bank. You see that? I, I have this amount in the bank, that's my blanket, that's my security blanket. That's between you and God, though. You know, how much or what. But same with time, you know, giving my time to people. I'm worried and I'm lustful for things. And God tells me very graciously, give those up. Now, here's the thing about giving up those things. Is that none of it gets given up unless you jump to something else that's just as sinful or possibly worse. But it has to be, that area of your life has to be filled by God. There's, I just read another article about uh, the, the plague of pornography on the Internet. that just popped up on one of my news sites today. I just skimmed it because it just, you know, I, anyway. But it, it still fascinates me because there's so many people who are addicted to it. And this addiction is so prolific in our world. And I know it's prolific amongst Christian men. And it's just so easy to do in private. No one's going to know except those cookies that are all over your, you know what cookies are. They're tracking everywhere you go. But, um, you know, that part of your life, that sensuality, that sensuality is not a bad thing. It's the way you're exercising it is a bad thing. God wants to fill it. And you say, well, what is he going to send me? A bunch of supermodels? No. God's going to fill it with him. And he will show you how he will fill it. But you've got to follow him. That, That is just one of many examples. Worry of the world. Deceitfulness of riches. They choke the word. And yeah, so now we come to the True, which is the life of fruit. And as I said before, and I'm going to run out of time here, but in Mark chapter 8, he says, If anyone wishes to come after me, Jesus said, he must deny himself and pick up his cross and follow me. And God is going to give you all the power in the world, all power to deny yourself and follow him. You must not quit on it. I know we all struggle. I have struggled and continue to struggle and falling down, but picking myself back up and getting at it again. And at some point in your life, God's going to open up your eyes to the fact that you do have the faith that you are a good tree and that you can deny yourself. Though in some things it may seem so impossible to do, it's not. I promise you it's not. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will find it. So, the life with fruit is a regenerated heart who hears the word and understands it. And so, you, as a spiritual, spiritually maturing believer, the axe will not be at the root of your tree. Now, for us, that Imagery uh, would speak of our lack of experience of the spiritual life, the lack of experience of eternal life and time. It could mean, uh, as some uh, think, it is a sin unto death that God would take us home early. It's true. It could mean that as well. There are plenty of people who live miserable lives who live to be old and miserable. And God has designed all of us to produce fruit. All right, so now we go to the last one, Matthew 21. I'm going to have to run through this quickly here. But I think you get the gist. And here, just again, a re-emphasis. Notice, now I skipped the parable of the wheat and the tares, which is also in Matthew 13, which speaks of fruit. Uh, And it shows us that all of us are designed to to, um, bear fruit. Matthew 21, 20. And you can skim over it real quick. I think you all know it. That is the, the uh, situation of the fig tree that Jesus finds and doesn't have fruit on it. So he curses it and it withers. And that's when he, he says to his disciples, if you have faith, you can move this mountain and ca- throw it into the sea. Uh, which is that, Well, what, he, No, he doesn't want us to move mountains. What he wants us to do is is to bear divine fruit, which is just as impossible as moving mountains. Unless you're tapped in, in your faith every day, your fellowship with the Lord, that God will show you how to produce divine fruit. Uh, but look at verse 33. It's a parable of the landowner. <clears throat> Matthew 21, 33. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who... Planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. And this is a quote actually from Isaiah chapter five, Isaiah five one and two, in which God says, "I built you Israel as a vineyard and then I went to look for the fruit and you had nothing but bad fruit." And so the same thing. Jesus pulls this out and the people listening to him know Isaiah. I should know this passage and know that he is speaking as God to his nation Israel. So there was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. And he rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. And again, he sent another group of slaves, larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he said, has sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. This was actually a part of the, the way things were done then, is that if there was no heir, the vine workers could inherit the vineyard. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? Now, they understand the simplicity of this. They said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the, proceeds the proper seasons. And they answer correctly. That's exactly what's going to happen. And he explains it. The first, he quotes again, Did you ever read in the Scriptures, again from Isaiah The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. The stone which the builders rejected, the stone which the builders said, no, this isn't going to work. It became the very foundation of the building. And in this case, this building is the kingdom of heaven. That's the end of all history. This kingdom. And he's the cornerstone. And you and I, are founded in him. The baptism of the Spirit, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are forever united to this cornerstone. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls in this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls it will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard these par- heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. When, he sought- when they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. Uh, and again, like we saw yesterday, what is the M.O., modus operandi, of the Pharisees? Well, if they have nothing left for them to do, they won't think about it, they won't consider. And all of us can fall into this. That we have this blanket solution, just destroy. Uh, we're going to just quit. We're just going to ignore. This is what we do. It's not necessarily killing, but it's us not dealing with the issue. Now we just quit on things, or we, um, <clears throat> or, or we just ignore the issue rather than actually thinking and learning. But we. As he says here, the vineyard's going to be taken away and given to the one who produced the fruit of it. Well, guess what? That is the church. And the kingdom the kingdom's not here on earth, but you and I are members of it. The ones who find no place in the kingdom of heaven have always sought to destroy it. They're still trying to now. But notice, you can't destroy it. Jesus just said it's just going to be given to somebody else. If any of us think that in the church that we're important, like the church needs us, anybody, myself or anybody, we we are not needed. God will pass it on to someone else. If we don't take advantage of the plan of God for our lives, God's plan isn't hindered. We're hindered. And that's the point he's getting to us here. To the Pharisees and Sadducees, John gives an ultimate warning. The, the axe is at the root of the trees. The trees are going to be cut down. Jesus here, and this is the last mention of fruit in Matthew's gospel, is that the kingdom is going to be taken from you and it's going to be given to another. Now, you and I possess it. You and I are made good trees and we are to produce fruit. Now, all of us need to produce more fruit than we're producing now. Am I correct? I mean, none of us have reached the pinnacle of spiritual maturity and don't need to grow anymore. Of course we have to. So are we asking and looking in God and his word and God in prayer, what areas of my life should I confess? What areas of my life should I repent of and change where I'm not seeking God in that area of my life? What area of my life do I need to overcome? It's hindering me from producing the fruit that I should. And if I have overcome things, wonderful. What else? It's a never-ending journey (laughs) of constant improvement, which is wonderful. To know that in the future, I'll be producing more fruit than I am now. That's called hope. So you and I have to produce fruit. Repent in the areas of your life that, where you don't produce fruit and seek God's wisdom in prayer. Discover, ask God, where are those areas? Because we can ignore them. We're very good at that. We're very good at self-justifying and we're very good at ignoring the places in our lives that need the work. And, uh, and we can go by years and not change at all. We can accumulate tons of the Bible and not change at all. Because we're not looking at ourselves in the mirror of the Word of God. Really looking at ourselves. And having the courage by faith to say, God, you've got to change this. Let's pray. And thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for all things that you do for us through our Lord and this wonderful truths in this gospel. We ask, Father, that through your Spirit we would all be enlightened By that truth. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.